Amen? So here we have good, solid, straightforward, easy to understand parable, right? There it is. Today's passage is bookended, actually, by the same phrase. In the previous passage, in chapter 19, verse 30, it says, But many who are the first will be the last, and the last first. And at the end of this passage, we read, So the last will be first, and the first last. So, I believe it's very safe to say that Jesus' main theme here was that the last will be first, and the first will be last. We got that? Got it? Good? This one, does seem, this one does seem pretty straightforward, yeah, but there's more here, and we shouldn't quickly run past any of the kingdom of heaven parables. In fact, if you were here around uh, this past August or September, when we were in chapter 13, chapter 13 alone had, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of a mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. It's like a net. And yet here we have another kingdom of heaven parable. And they don't all mean the same thing. So we want to give this some time and attention. Jesus gave us parables too in varying degrees of understandability. And we get that from Mark chapter 4 verse 13. Jesus said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? Today's parable, I would guess, and maybe I'm Monday morning quarterbacking it here, would be one of the more understandable passages, right? Master of the house is God. The laborers are the people of God who are called and understood the work that needed to be done. And the vineyard is God's kingdom on earth. But that understandability could kind of be a bold assumption on, on my part. Again, early in Matthew, before all these kingdom of God pieces, we read this in chapter 13, 10. And, and we don't read this, but that passage of kingdom of heaven sadly leads us to believe that a lot of people don't understand Jesus' parables because they don't want to understand them. So let's unpack this now. This is my first time preaching a full sermon at Terra, so I assume there's going to be some grace. <laughs> a seasoned sermon writer at our church may look at a passage where Jesus is being relatively clear in, in, in what he's trying to get across, and a three-point roadmap will just jump right out at them. Well, I was having a hard time. <laughs> I simply recalled, though, a phrase a very profound little phrase that I had heard many years ago, and I actually remembered it. And this little phrase, if believed and understood rightly, has the uncanny ability to refocus us and to help us better understand the gospel of Jesus Christ and to do so with a heart of humility. So today's three-point roadmap looks like this. God doesn't owe you anything. Second part, God doesn't owe you anything. And the third part, God doesn't owe you anything. So, before we get into that, I would love to give a little context. I'm a big fan of context. Um, if you've been at Terror for a while, you know that on Sunday mornings, when I have the opportunity to lead worship, I sometimes talk about a song before I play a song. I don't do that as much as I used to. I was lovingly informed that I talk too much. 
which is reasonable, which is reasonable. If you're going to give little micro-sermons in between songs, I had to work on editing, for sure. But still, even that, I feel like a little bit of extra insight can enhance our understanding to some of the truths that we sing and enrich our honest and meaningful corporate and individual worship toward a holy God. I mean, if we're going to sing, here I raise my Ebenezer, it's kind of helpful to know we're not singing about Scrooge, right? <laughs> so, such is the case with Scripture, I believe. Context is not just helpful in understanding God's Word, it is necessary. Amen? And we live in a time when it is easier than ever to be able to find context for Scripture. We have the world of knowledge in our back pocket. We simply have to say, okay, Google, in Genesis 6, who were the Nephilim? Don't do that unless you've got plenty of time because it's nuts. But 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15 says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, and here's the piece, rightly handling the word of truth. So with that said, I'd like to take a little bit of time to understand this passage better with some historical context. And a lot of this stuff some of you may already know. We're going to talk about time. We're going to talk about money. We're going to talk about setting. If you're using a different Bible translation today, such as the, the New Living Translation, the translators have already done some of these calculations for us. Uh, Terra Nova, we use the English Standard Version, the ESV. That's the one that, that we do readings from, the ones that we hand out at the table, the one that's linked on the guide page. So I'd like to unpack some of the wordage in the translation that we read today. Jewish people in biblical times told and defined time a little differently than we do. We follow what's considered Roman time. It's two 12-hour sections, right, that a day starts at midnight. In Jewish time, the New Testament is broken up into two 12-hour sections as well because the sun doesn't change based on our culture. But Jewish time is divided into daytime and nighttime based on sunrise and sunset. And the most common example for understanding this, if you don't already, is the Jewish Sabbath. We know the Jewish Sabbath is celebrated on Saturday, but it begins when the sun goes down on Friday night. So each new Jewish 24-hour day began at sundown. The general equivalent to Roman time, as we would have it today, it would be considered 6 p.m. And then 6 a.m. would be considered sunrise. So if we apply those calculations to today's reading, to today's passage, when it says the third hour of daytime, in Roman time that would be 9 a.m., the sixth hour would have been noon, and ninth hour would have been 3 p.m., so when we read in verse 6 of today's passage, about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing, and he said to them, why do you stand idle here all day? The master was hiring people at 5 p.m. to work for the day. Talk a little bit about money. Uh, I recall a couple weeks ago, I believe Pastor Bill talked about this. He had a big picture of a denarius up on the screen there. The silver denarius was the standard unit of Roman currency, and it was understood to be the equivalent of a day's wages for a laborer. And this passage today is cited most commonly for us to understand that. Now again, a lot of Bible translators will do this work for you if you have a New Living Translation. It'll say, instead of denarius, it'll say right in the passage, a normal day's wage. And we can make comparisons easily enough when it comes to time, but it would be difficult to make comparative values in what's considered a standard day's wage in modern-day America in 2021, so I'm not going to try. But we can make the denarius thing a little bit clearer by referring to the book of Revelation. 
after all the seals are broken in the book of Revelation and we get to the apocalyptic end time judgment, in chapter 6, verse 6, it says, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. Now, a little research, and I find that these are dry measures, and these dry measures are understood to be the amount of food that one man can consume in a day. So what John the Revelator is doing when he does this in Revelation is he's illustrating extreme scarcity by saying that a laborer's day wage is not near enough to care for a family. And since having offspring in Middle Eastern culture was not just common, but it was considered duty, I'd like to be able to, I feel comfortable lengthening the definition of a denarius to say that it's a living day's wage required to care for a family. And then just a quick moment to understand the situation. Grapes. Grapes were one of the most valuable commodities in ancient Israel because they could be transformed into... Yes, so, and the quality of the fine wine, or the wine that one produced was resultant to the proper time of the harvest, and if you had good wine, it ensured profitability, and if you had not so good wine, it did not ensure profitability. So, the time of the harvest, when that came along, vineyard owners would employ as many extra day laborers as they possibly could. So, in today's parable, in today's scenario, uh, either the scale of the vineyard was so large, or the, the window of time was so small, or both, that the master felt it necessary to keep returning to the marketplace to get more and more help. And the marketplace itself was kind of like a schoolyard pick. Those late in the day that we hear about who were still unhired were presumably not hired because they were not seen to be good workers. They were the undesirables, those that were hired at 5 p.m. So there's your setting, right? Day begins at 6 a.m., 9 a.m., noon, 3 p.m., 5 p.m., Payment that they're getting is enough to care for a family for a day, and we have hard work. That's important, and it has to be done quickly and carefully. And then finally, we have the complaints of perceived injustice by the hardworking, quality laborers. So last week, Pastor Tory touched on how we flippantly, if you were here, he talked about the word good, and how sometimes you say, well, that's a good hamburger. It doesn't mean the same as being a good person. I'd like to quickly just make his same point today, about how easy that is to do. There are some words that we casually say without taking into consideration the massive implications that come along with them. The go-to example is love, right? I love that movie. I love my child. God is love. Those are all big different kinds of loves. And a lot has been said about the different kind of loves and their meanings and their usages. But my point in that is that we knowingly or tend to unknowingly distort or change or dilute the emphasis of a word to suit our need or our situation or our meanings. Appropriate that idea to this. Have you ever heard yourself saying out loud or with your inner monologue, that's not fair? Fair, right? There's a loaded word. We are guilty of flippantly using without considering the implications of what fair is. In fact, we go so far sometimes as to take the word fair and the word right and use them synonymously. Why did that guy do that? That's not right. Where does this innate sense of human justice come from? And believe me, make no mistake, it is innate. That's shown as we often equate this example of that's not fair with children coming to a parent to make a case of justice in regard to whose piece of cake is bigger. 
A child doesn't need to learn or be taught about this concept of human fairness, right? And as adults, it can be really hard to unlearn. This concept of human fairness is integral to today's parable. So let's get back to our roadmap. God doesn't owe you anything. Now, it's reasonable to believe that this innate sense of human justice that I'm talking about has its origins in the Garden of Eden, and I'm not going to jump into the theological deep end here on how the knowledge of good and evil throws this massive wrench into the, the gears of the human condition. I'm going to like to stay on topic. But I'd like to better understand why God doesn't owe us anything by first trying to understand just a fraction of God's nature. And we'll do that by taking a quick detour into one of the earliest written books of the Bible, possibly the earliest book written, one of my favorites, Job. Job tackles that wonderful classic question that people still ask today and use as justification. Why do bad things happen to good people? Our sense of human justice and fairness is tied up in that question. So let me give a quick Reader's Digest version on the story of Job. You have Job, he's a God-fearing man. A God-fearing man, a moral man. In his time, he had all the material and familial blessings that a person could have. And for reasons best left for another sermon, God strips away Job's wealth, strips away his family, strips away his health, and leaves him sitting in a pile of ashes and broken pottery. And it condensed chapters and chapters and chapters of, of Middle Eastern poetry. Job tells God, hey, how is this fair? God himself declines to present a rational explanation for what Job is asking. And he replies with a series of rhetorical questions, intending to show Job how little he knows about creation and how much power God alone actually has. Job acknowledges this and admits the limitations to his human knowledge and his inability to justify God's ways. So you see the correlation already here between Job and the workers? Our innate sense of human justice and fairness largely comes from a gross misunderstanding of the three omnis of God. God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. And God is omnipresent. He is always there. God chooses what to give and what to take away. And I should have had Pastor Rob put that song in a set list today. <laughs> so this is a part of God's nature that, unless we're you know, really steeped in the Old Testament, we tend to, to forget or sometimes ignore actually how big and powerful and in command our God is. So our next point, God doesn't owe you anything. I saw a comedian once on a talk show, as we all have, and he was recounting a time when, when he was on a plane when the airline first introduced free in-flight Wi-Fi. So this was some time ago. And at the time, he's like, this is amazing, right? I'm a thousands of feet above the earth, and, and I can stream YouTube videos. It was outstanding. And... So they're on their phones, and soon after reaching cruising altitude, the flight attendant announces that there's a technical problem, and the Wi-Fi went down. Instantly, the passenger in the seat next to him goes, this is BS. Although he didn't say BS. <laughs> and the comedian, for the sake of common, for comedy, insightfully reflects on the human condition by noting how amazingly fast 
this passenger thought he was owed something that he didn't even know existed 15 minutes prior. Amazingly fast and completely justified to him, right, in his selfish mindset, it was about himself. How do we so easily come to the delusional conclusion that God owes us anything, right? If I contractually lend Carl five bucks, I have the right to ask for that money back, right? So here's the, here's the big point for point two. What have we given God that puts us in any position to demand something from him? The commentator Matthew Henry said it this way, God is a debtor to no man. I'll say it again. What have we given God that puts us in a position that we demand something? But if we're being honest, we've said it, we've thought it, maybe even during this last tumultuous year. This is BS. Or say to God, how dare you? How dare you allow me to get sick? How dare you take a loved one from me before their time? Yet we do. And how do we justify that? By saying, well, it's just not fair. Now, I want to pause for a second and clear, be very clear about something, okay? I'm making this point about the sinful nature of our human heart that selfishly misunderstands God's ways. I am not saying that you shouldn't ask God why questions, okay? On the contrary, praying out of desperation is encouraged. And to acknowledge that we can't know all of God's eternal ways and reasonings, though it's okay to shake your fist at the sky and say, why God? If you're willing to... In faith, wait on him to answer in his time and in his way. I just wanted to clarify that. But then, as you say, this piece about God being a debtor doesn't really apply to the parable. After all, the workers were owed something, right, based on a deal that they made with the master of the vineyard. But that's, again, that's not the point. I want to be clear about the point we're making here. It's an illustration of God's grace to the undeserving. In fact, if we go back to the previous chapter that we talked about last week, we can see what instigated this parable. Jesus had just finished telling the rich young ruler, go sell all the possessions you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And Simon Peter, oh, Simon Peter, Simon Peter responds to Jesus, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Right? This suggests that Simon Peter was assuming preferential treatment or a greater reward for himself and from the disciples who left all. Peter, like those 6 a.m. hires, assumed a reward based on works. And even though we can perhaps sense a tone of self-righteousness in Peter there, there's no reason to believe that on that side of the crucifixion, it wasn't a legit inquiry that Peter was making. But Jesus' response was today's parable, and it was categorical. And lest... We look down on Simon Peter's heart in this situation. We can take an honest look inward, and I'll do that now, a little confession time. When I, grew, I grew up in the Christian faith, and when I was young, my juvenile brain put people into two categories, Christian, non-Christian, right? the saved, the unsaved, the elect, the reprobate, whatever you want to say it. And I sanctimoniously, maybe not even as a child, but even as a teenager, sanctimoniously resented the idea of a deathbed conversion. My reasoning was that the Christian life is just such an everyday struggle 
of turning from sin and trying to be holy as God is holy. Meanwhile, the soul who spends a life enjoying all the depraved pleasures of the world somehow gets a free pass at the last minute. That's not fair. <laughs> of course, it was very short-sighted of me. It was very self-centered and mature view of the gospel based on my idea of fairness. I also didn't take into consideration, too, A, the depraved life to live apart from God isn't exactly an 80-year roller coaster of joy and true pleasure. And two, the Christ-following life, though a struggle in many times and in many ways, is a pleasure and a treasure and a gift of daily living out the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Last week as well, Pastor Tory had a slide up there that called this kind of thing a heart measure, if you remember seeing that last week. Here's a silly heart measure. Who's the most reviled man in modern history that everybody loves to equate with evil personified? Right? Stalin, he says. <laughs> I shouldn't have just asked that out loud. Here's the heart measure. Did Jesus die for Hitler? I mean, it's, a, it's a good little heart gauge, right? A modern parable feel. What do you do with the scenario that in some miraculous way in an underground bunker in Berlin on April 30th, 1945, God forgave Adolf? Do we dare to ask the question, is the blood of Christ powerful enough for that? I should have had him put power in the blood on the set list today. <laughs> I would have been perfect. But of course, Jesus calls out this verse. He calls this out in one verse, verse 15. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Church, let's not do that. Let us not begrudge the generosity of our Savior as it applies to any human in any way. Point three, God doesn't owe you anything. He gave you everything. Workers aren't paid on the amount or the level of work that they accomplished. We receive from God not payment for our work, but the gifts that he promised. I mean, if we do the math, right, the payout for those 5 p.m. workers was 92% undeserved gift. So here's point three, and hear this. Fairness in the kingdom of heaven is defined by God's abundant generosity and not by any human measure of entitlement. And he is never unjust. Our God is never unjust. The 8 a.m. workers, they didn't just misunderstand the ultimate power of the master of the vineyard. They didn't just misunderstand the status of their own hearts as it pertained to fairness. They misunderstood the deep, deep level of grace that the master showed. They misunderstood the internal, the eternal, and the external. And if they rightly understood what was going on, at the end of the day when the denarii were being handed out, they should have rejoiced with those 5 p.m. undeserved, undesirable workers. Think about that. And I'll say it. Listen, if I'm in the position of that early hire, the 8 a.m. worker, my first instinct, all sweaty and tired from 12 hours, would not be to rejoice 
that I got to spend the day serving a benevolent master and then got to witness an amazing act of charity. I wouldn't. How do I know? If somebody shows up at the old Freer Park cleanup a half hour before lunch, I'd be the first one to say, hey, just in time for pizza, huh? <laughs> right? I would. I absolutely would. You people know me well enough. I'm a jerk. I was not expecting an amen on that one. But. <laughs> but this parable, right, here we have Jesus, in his own words, relaying a massive piece of insight into understanding the Christian faith according to his gospel. The overwhelming amount of grace is unfathomable if and when we weigh it against God's three omnis and what we sinners deserve. So what is this gift? What is this everything that he gave us? Many of you know. Some of you may not. The gift of salvation is the saving of our eternal souls through an undeserved gift of God's forgiveness, an all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present creator God, the one that revealed himself to Job and humbled Job that God became the man Jesus. And he sacrificed himself, and he paid for our sin, and it reconciled us to God, the Father. And the one man in all of humanity that actually had the right to say, hey, this isn't fair, he's the one who gave himself so that we can live eternally through him and with him. Amen? I want to tell a final story, if I could. I hope you grasp that we talked a lot about grace today. I'd like to tell a little story about mercy. And uh, you know the old double-up definition, right? Grace is receiving what we don't deserve, and mercy is not receiving what we do deserve. Seven years ago, a handful of us from Terra... I had uh, the opportunity to go to Salerno, Italy, uh, to spend a week there helping a church planter engage a city there, there where he was planting a church. And, you know, he put together for us what uh, we would have considered a, a VBS, a vacation Bible school, where unchurched kids could spend a few hours for a couple weeks having fun, playing games, and learning Bible stories. The Albany Sheriff's Department uh, had heard about our trip, and he, they gave us a Frisbee to bring to Italy to use to, to play with the kids and ultimately to give it away. And it had a sheriff's badge on it and, you know, whatever logo the sheriff's department had across of it. it was, I think it was Black Frisbee. And on the last day when the kids were all sitting in a semicircle and they were listening to Pastor Ed talk about the sheriff's department, and Ed told them a fictional story about a sheriff who captured a bad man. He captured a robber. And he brought the robber before the judge and the judge found the robber guilty. And at the last minute, the judge told the robber, you can go free. I'll go to jail for you. We see that as a gospel correlation, right? One little boy must have been about 10 years old. He stood up and pointed at it. He stood up and pointed at Pastor Ed, and he started yelling at Ed in Italian because we were in Italy. And he started doing this with this 
adolescent righteous indignation. And it wasn't until later when we talked to the interpreter, that little boy stood up, pointed at the pastor and said, no, that's wrong. The judge can't do that. If people don't get punishments, everybody will be bad. That little boy was pretty insightful. But that day, he had his innate sense of human justice challenged. And likely for the very first time, he was presented with what we can call the scandal of grace. In this case, mercy, but scandalous nonetheless. The transliterated Greek word scandalon means a hindrance or an offense or a stumbling block. The gospel of grace and mercy can be so contrary to our sinful senses of entitlement, so scandalous that many can't even accept it. But as the band comes forward and we prepare our hearts for communion, I ask the question, what do you do with the truth that God doesn't owe you anything, but that he gave you everything? Does it do what I hoped at the beginning? Does it refocus us? Does it help us better understand how unfathomably powerful and wonderful Jesus' death and resurrection truly is? Bring that to the table today. If you've got your little communion cups, is what we're considering the table. And when we hear the words today, Christ's body broken for you, remember, it was nothing of our own doing. And when we hear, this is the new covenant in my blood, remember, the master of the vineyard freely gave to us the undisturbing. And to not overstate a word that we use flippantly, that is awesome. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in humble humility. Honestly, not truly understanding how big and holy you are. I don't think we can ever understand the depth of what you did for us on the cross of Calvary. But Father, we ask that today you would awaken us a little more insight into knowing you and knowing ourselves and understanding your wonderful truths. Be with us now as we celebrate your supper. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.